Ellis Island in New York Harbor was once the first glimpse of the New World for scores of immigrants. For more than 60 years, starting in 1892, the tired, the poor, the huddled masses of the world spilled onto the docks there, over 12 million of them altogether. Today, the island is one of New York City's most frequented tourist attractions, and for many, still an icon of hope, a place of possibilities and new beginnings. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, the Ellis Island Experience, from a variety of perspectives. You're tuned to 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Glad you're with us. My first guest this morning conducts tours of Ellis Island. Before starting up his own service, Tom Bernardin took people around the island for the National Park Service. Tom's also the author of the Ellis Island Immigrant Cookbook. Tom, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we talk about your cookbook, I want to sort of pick your brain about Ellis Island and its history. Okay. I understand that if you're looking at it from above, Ellis Island is in the shape of a U? Well, actually, I say a capital E. There are three islands. They're referred to as three islands. Island number one, uh, which is the main building that people visit today. And across the water there, there's island number two, south towards the Statue of Liberty. Those are the hospital buildings and administrative offices. And then closest to the Statue of Liberty is what's called island number three. And the contagious disease wards are there and the commissioner's residence. But these three islands are connected by a common spine. And that's how you get between the three so-called islands. And the island grew to the size it is today because of the excavation for the subway, right? That's all landfill. That's right. They wanted to create an immigration station on an island because they figured they could better protect the immigrants. We were excavating for the construction of Grand Central Terminal. We were digging a subway system. So they brought that landfill out there. Ellis went from three acres in size to 27 and a half acres. How did it get the name Ellis? Uh, Named after Samuel Ellis. He was a New Jersey farmer and a real estate holder. I believed he lived on Greenwich Street in Lower Manhattan. He owned it in the 18th century and willed it to his granddaughter. The federal government bought it from her heirs. My grandmother and great-grandparents on my mother's side emigrated from Italy, and they quickly assimilated to life here in the U.S., but they didn't give up their taste for the foods of their homeland. Now, that seems like the main thing that people coming over here from other countries weren't about to give up, the foods of their homelands. These people at Ellis Island, uh, meals were when their families were reunited, and a lot of the food was very foreign to them. Uh, when you had fewer immigrants coming, you would have ethnic meals. You'd have a kosher meal, say, at noon, Italian meal at one, a German meal at two, the, and so on and so forth. But what do you do with the Irishman sitting down at spaghetti and tomato sauce and refusing to eat it because it looked like bloody worms? So my guess is uh, as soon as they got into their American, their new American homes, they would be making the cabbage and, you know, what the pasta or whatever it was that they remembered. Hence your book, The Hence Ellis book. Island Immigrant Cookbook. Yeah. Yeah. How many countries are represented 35. in this? 35. 35 countries, yeah. What I wanted to do, you, you know, I was at Ellis 78, 79, 80 for six months of the year, okay? It was seasonal. There was no heat, so. And this was before the museum. The, the buildings were falling down all over here. And I knew that they were going to be doing coffee table books and big picture books and stuff like that. And I didn't want to try to even compete with any of that. But I had all this knowledge, and uh, I'm, I'm just very fond of the place. So I tried to figure out 
what nobody was thinking of. And I said to myself, the food. And, and what I tried to do, and I think I succeeded, is to draw a big circle around all of us, all our diff- different ethnic groups, to show what we have in common. A lot of these meals are cheap to make. Well, that's just it. You know, these people didn't have a lot of money. So it was cabbage, you know, a lot of cabbage, a lot of flour, and, and just basic stuff like that. I chose the recipes. I wanted a variety of foods, but if the recipe wasn't so terrific, if they had a good story, or if they touched upon a historical point that I really felt should be made, then I wanted to put that recipe in there. You offer tips in the back of the book on how to preserve a family That's recipe. That's right. That's right. It's a shame to lose a family recipe. And, and some people insist upon taking them to their grave. I can't figure that out. The recipes in your book do speak to a particular point in time, because I'm sure many of these recipes wouldn't be recommended by a cardiologist today. A couple of them, there are modern. You can see where they, they updated them as, as through the generations. But these are how the people remember the recipes. This is what they make on holidays. Tom, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. You can learn more about Tom Bernardin's tours of Ellis Island and his immigrant cookbook at ellisislandtours.com. Each year, a few million visitors walk through Ellis Island's Great Hall. But there are other buildings there the public can't access, at least not yet. My next guest has written a book and produced a film on a long-forgotten chapter in Ellis Island's history, the story of its massive hospital complex. Lori Conway, welcome to Cityscape. Good morning. Nice to be with you. The Ellis Island Hospital Complex was made up of 22 buildings. It was constructed on what's considered the south side of the island. It's also been called the dark side of the island. Why is that? I looked at the hospital during my 10 years on and off of researching it as a safety net with holes. It had uh, the potential to heal people, and it did. Nine out of 10 of the immigrant patients went on to become citizens. But it also was not immune to the restrictionist impulses of the time. Mental tests were being administered, and often they were being failed by the immigrants because they were based on language and culture, neither of which many of the immigrants knew. Uh, So it was by no means a perfect place. Um, But I think there was a lot of hope there, too. Laura, you mentioned the language barrier issue. Even today, it can be very difficult for non-English speakers to navigate the health care system How hard was it back then for those folks? Fiorella LaGuardia, the celebrated mayor of New York City, was a law student at the time of the era of Ellis Island as an immigration port of entry. He would go out there during the day. He went to law school at night, and he would interpret for the immigrants because he knew seven different languages. And he wrote in his memoirs uh, the heartbreak of some of the deportations as a result of the mental tests that were being given based on language. And he saw time after time an immigrant family being split up because they did did not understand the language or the nuance of the questions that were being asked. And people were uh, wrongfully being deported, and LaGuardia witnessed it over and over. What were they looking for through these mental exams? Well, intelligence. Uh, They were concerned that... uh, Uh, The feeble-minded were infiltrating the United States, and mostly in New York City schools where many of the immigrant families ended up in the Lower East Side. The public schools uh, had an influx of immigrant children, 
And, of course, they were overwhelming the system, and uh, public health was a big concern. And uh, the feeble-minded were uh, being, you know, brought into the country at a rate that nobody was quite sure uh, after the novelty wore off whether it was worth it and whether it was uh, a threat to the nation. You uncovered photographs of immigrants considered mentally ill. They're basically mugshots, but they're quite telling. You look at the faces of the feeble-minded, as I refer to them in the film and the book, And, you know, it's the old there, but for the grace of God, go I. I mean, these uh, immigrants who are photographed look like my grandmother and my grandfather, scared, hungry. They look tired and exhausted and just terrified. Um, And chances are they have just probably failed this mental test. They were being photographed um, by the psychiatrist within the psychopathic hospital. And there were uh, diagnoses written in, underneath their name. They didn't. They were not uh, named. They are nameless. But uh, diagnoses such as imbecile, low moron, uh, juvenile, uh, paretic, uh, constitutional apathy, alcoholism. As far as the physical ailments doctors were looking for, the list was pretty long, right? Oh, indeed. I mean, in the era before antibiotics, contagious diseases like typhus, cholera, tuberculosis, diphtheria, polio, scarlet fever, they could not only be deadly, but they could cause epidemics, which could spread throughout the country. The most common disease, though, was an eye infection, right? Called trachoma, yes. It was a very common disease that is yet to be eradicated in the third world. Uh, But trachoma was a disease uh, in many of the Uh, areas of poverty where the immigrants were coming from, highly contagious. And what the doctors were on the lookout for was not only a contagious disease, but whether this immigrant could become an LPC, likely to become a public charge or a welfare case. And so trachoma was a disease that was certainly you were barred from entry if you had it, although many of the immigrants did end up at the hospital for several weeks, several months at a time. Often immigrant aid societies would step in and would help them pay hospital bills. And if you didn't get that help, were you deported? Some were deported as a result of not getting that help, or after a certain amount of time, a couple of months, if you still had the trachoma, chances are you were going to be deported as a result. Conditions on the boat over for many immigrants were far from desirable. Did a lot of people get sick on their journey, or did most newcomers bring their illnesses from back home when they arrived? If you weren't sick when you got on the boat from your home country, there was a very good chance that you could be sick as you stepped foot on Ellis Island because, yes, the uh, steamships uh, were by no means um, hygienic. I mean, the food, the water uh, was not fresh after a week or two, uh, and these trips took off in up to three and four weeks. Uh, and the immigrants were in steerage class uh, where there wasn't plumbing and there were lots of rats and uh, diseases were spreading, and uh, they were, you know, really displaying themselves as they ended up in front of these doctors in uh, at Ellis Island. You didn't want to have a chalk mark put on you, right? H was for heart. T was for trachoma. Uh, P was for pregnancy. Uh, a variety of things that they would put on your coat or your dress, and that meant that you had to be uh, taken privately into another room You were told to strip, and you were then given another uh, more in-depth examination. 
You mentioned P is for pregnancy. A lot of babies born on Ellis Island at the hospital there. 350 babies were born in the hospital, and many were named after the doctors and nurses who helped deliver them. And 10 times that many, 3,500 people, died in the Ellis Island Hospital. And there was an autopsy amphitheater out there. And medical students from Bellevue and other area schools, medical schools, would come out to the island and witness these autopsies of these many exotic diseases that uh, the doctors were seeing for the first time. How did they safeguard the public's health against contagious disease? Well, that's why the hospital was built. It was the line of first defense. The wards were staggered, there, you know, so the germs could not go from one ward to the next. And they built this contagious disease hospital, which was a a quarantine center for sure, but it also provided state-of-the-art medical care. And they figured if they could get the immigrants as they got off the boats with these contagious diseases and contain them, then you wouldn't have the typhoid Mary scares and potential epidemics. Nine out of ten of the immigrant patients went on to become citizens, and no epidemic was ever traced to an immigrant group. Uh, who were in the hospital or a patient who was in the hospital. It definitely accomplished its public health mission, and it made a difference in the lives of tens of thousands of patients. Lori Conway is the author of Forgotten Ellis Island, the extraordinary story of America's immigrant hospital and award-winning producer of a film of the same name. Lori, thanks so much. Thank you so much. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. On this morning's show, the Ellis Island Experience, from a variety of perspectives. For visitors to the island today, the experience is educational and often emotional. My name is Tony Ramsey. I come from uh, just outside Belfast in Northern Ireland. Uh, I was speaking with my mother and asked her if she knew when her grand aunts had actually emigrated to the States. And I found the two aunts that she told me about and another aunt who I don't know anything about yet coming here and going through the whole tour and finding out what the emigrants had to go through in order to become American and to realise that the part of my my own family had taken that trip as well. It was, it was quite emotional. In those days, there was no way of knowing what was on the other side. It, it's, it's like a leap of faith. My name is Sushma, Sushma Saxena. I'm from the UK, Newcastle. When we came to New York, it's very metropolitan and very mixed. And then we boarded the ferry. And if you could switch back in time 100 years, you would probably find as much mix of people today as it was, say, 200 years ago. I think you have to be very, very, very brave and very desperate to be able to embark on that kind of journey. But um, you wonder whether, had they not taken that journey, uh, they may have not had the opportunities. My full name is Paul Piper, and I'm from Bellingham, Washington. While we were out here, I wanted to look at my grandfather, who has kind of a mysterious past. He apparently came over from Germany uh, in the early 1900s and... um, changed his name when he got over here because he was running from the law in Germany. I was able to, I think, find him uh, in the archives, and it was pretty exciting to actually locate him. Hopefully the statute of limitations on whatever he did has expired by now. I'm Jay Schaefer from Greeley, Colorado. I think a lot of people don't understand the immigrant history of the United States. Where we live in Colorado, there's a huge immigrant population right now mostly from Latin America, and a lot of people just don't really appreciate that no matter who you are, your ancestors are basically immigrants here in the United States. 
My name is Mary Hubbard and I'm from San Diego, California. My father, who lived to be almost 98 years old, did tell the story about coming through Ellis Island and the whole bit, although he was only three. I just looked up uh, my father and my grandfather, who came from Denmark. Many of us lose our heritage, that it's wonderful to be able to look at things like that and look them up and it's kind of like the thrill of the chase and then when you actually find it, it's just very emotional. About 40% of Americans can trace their heritage to an ancestor who passed through Ellis Island. And each year, the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation honors immigrants or their descendants who've made a major contribution to the American experience. Among this year's honorees are the multi-award-winning director, writer, composer, lyricist, comedian, actor, and producer Mel Brooks, and suspense novelist Mary Higgins Clark. I had the privilege of chatting with both of them about their family histories, though not at the same time. So let's begin with my interview with Mel Brooks. It's not every day that you get to talk to the 2,000-year-old man. Mel Brooks, hello. Not every day, but I talk to myself every day. <laughs> I have a running dialogue with myself every single day. Hello, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? You are one of the few entertainers to have won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Award, and more than one, I should say. Now, here comes an award of a different kind, the Ellis Island Family Heritage Award. You forgot to mention the Laurence Olivier Award for my show in uh, in London. Quite frankly, there are too many to mention. Yeah. But I want, about, yeah. I want that to get to the one that you're getting, though, now. Yeah, and what about the Long Island Clam Diggers Award for digging more clams uh, per hour than any other clam digger in Long Island? That one I didn't know about at all. Yeah, see, I plenty of awards, plenty of them. Well, here comes the Ellis Island Family Heritage Award. Yeah, well, it's very nice. You know, it's a wonderful thing to celebrate the phenomenon of what America's made up of. We have a caste system here of, you know, white Protestant from England, you know, that, and then slowly moving down to my people somewhere down, and, you know, we're, we're in the fifth or sixth tier, you know, Jews from Russia, or actually I'm a Jew from Danzig, but America is, you know, it's a polyglot, you know, homogeneous, insane mixture of all kinds of races and bloods and nationalities and feelings, and that's what makes us so strong and so great, you know. We're not whippets. You know, we're not greyhounds. We're not, you know, we don't have skinny little heads with with no brains, you know, running after a rabbit. And your name is a lot more ethnic than Mel Brooks, your real name. Yeah, my real name is. Well, actually, I took my name from my mother's side of the family. My real name is Kaminsky, and so was Danny Kay, and there were a couple of other Kaminskys. Uh, but Danny Kay was the most prominent other Kaminsky. When and why did you change it? Uh, I was a drummer. When I was 14 and I was working in a Borscht belt, and I couldn't get Kaminsky on the drum, so I decided that, you know, uh, I'd cut down Brookman, and, you know, it wasn't an ethnic decision because Kaminsky would really work better in the Borscht circuit than Brooks. But <laughs> I actually tried to get Brookman on the drums, but when I got to the K, I could see there was no room for a man. So I just shoved an S there, and it's because it's Mel Brooks ever since I was 14. Your dad was Maximilian Kaminsky. He was Maximilian Kaminsky, and my son is Maximilian Brooks. The folks at the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation say that your dad emigrated from Austria. Is that right? Actually, I don't know. I think he came from Danzig. I think they may have gotten it a little wrong. But he may have slipped out. Who knows? I I, I know he was born and raised in, in D-A-N-Z-I-G when it was... Uh, 
Prussian or German mm-hmm. before it was uh, Polish. But uh, who knows? I think the Jews used to just go across the border all the time, you know, from Grudno or... And now it's Gdansk, so there you have it. You know, it's uh, it's like an international or it's just a Polish-German city, you know. You were just a little boy when your dad passed. Uh, I was only two and a half. I never really got to know him. My brother Bernie tells me that he came home late one night with a rubber duck, a little yellow duck, and Bernie was sleeping with me, and Bernie thought Bernie was about five and I was two, and Bernie thought the duck was for him and was so happy until my father passed the duck, passed his face, and gave it to the baby, me, mm. you know. And he's never forgiven me. He's about 85 now. He doesn't hold a grudge, he's huh? Never forgiven, <laughs> but, you know, last year I went out and bought a little yellow rubber duck. He lives in Las Vegas, and I came there because the producers were showing there. And I came to see him, gave him a kiss, and gave him a yellow rubber duck. And he said, okay, I forgive you, you know. It's only about 80 years later, but, you know. According to the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation, your dad came to America on a ship called the Scandia, and they sent me an image of it, and I can tell you, Mel, it certainly doesn't look like the Queen Mary too. <laughs> I didn't know that until you just told me. Really? Uh, yeah, that's why I wanted to go there. I'm interested in the plaque. I'm interested in the whole thing is fiercely, passionately, very, very moving and very exciting and very emotional, you know, to think that these very brave immigrants came from this life to find a better life and that, in their courage, and you know, and, and that's really the... What makes America so great? That being said, Mel, what do you think about the immigration flap we hear today? Personally, I think that every everybody that that gets here, no matter how they get here, should be stamped American. You know, and you know, I know that the, it's unfair to somebody who's waited through the bureaucracy, but I think that you know, all all the illegals should be. I, personally, if they're good and they're honest and they're kind and, you know, and they work hard, they sh- they should be. Stamped American and loved, you know, and, and be part of our, our country. I really, I'm, I I know I'm in the minority, but, you know, I, that's the way I feel about it. If they've got the guts to, to come here and try to make a living for themselves and their families, and they're okay with me. How, if at all, would you say your ancestral roots are reflected in your work as an entertainer? Who knows? I mean, I have no idea. I, part of it must be uh, genetic. I mean, the, the genes must speak to us, you know. Like the jeans must say, "Oi, here come the Cossacks! Get under the bed!" I'm, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure they're saying that. But environment, a good, healthy, lower middle class, you know, poverty stricken childhood helped a lot too. I mean, there was there were these tenements, three sixty five South Third Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and uh, you know, there we were between Hooper and Keep on South Third Street. And there was a whole tenement full of Jews, and they sat on the steps, and if you did anything wrong, they told your mother, you know. And, and they were just wonderful. And growing up in Williamsburg, I mean, just, the streets flooded with people and good-natured, bonhomie, sweethearts, you know, and it, it, was a, it was a great beginning. Have you been back? It's changed quite a bit. Yeah, it's changed quite a bit. It went through uh, many transformations, many metamorphoses. I mean, it's, it's still, there's still a very Hasidic, you know, influence, uh, enclave above Broadway around Lee Avenue. And below that, there's, um, a lot of, it's like tripartite below Broadway. There's a lot of Central Americans, a lot of, of people from Salvador, Dominic, you know, just a lot of Central Americans. And then there's a new 
yuppie class that's taken over the, the north side of Williamsburg, and, and, you know, they've gentrified all the buildings that used to be $18 a month, and now they're 1800 a month, and it's, it's a wild collection. I, I go back all the time. My building was raised, unfortunately, mm. 365, but 361 is still there, and, and the first building, 350 down the block, that had actually had an elevator, is still there. Mel Brooks, thank you so much. Look, it's my pleasure. The Ellis Island Family Heritage Awards will be handed out Thursday in Ellis Island's Great Hall. Besides Mel Brooks, the honorees include Donna Shalala, the Forbes family, and as previously mentioned, Mary Higgins Clark. Here's my interview with the so-called Queen of Suspense. Good morning. Good morning, George. Mary, you've earned a number of awards through the years for your literary work, as well as for your Irish heritage. And now, here comes another one, the Ellis Island Family Heritage Award. I would imagine you're pretty proud to be an Irish-American. I've always said my DNA has shamrocks on it. I mean, my Irish heritage is what I credit for being a, a writer. How so? The Irish are storytellers. Nothing is ever simple. They don't say, I went to the store. They'll say it was a grand day, and I started for the store, and I bumped into so-and-so. You know what she told me? <laughs> I remember the storytelling. My mother was one of five daughters and four brothers, but it was the girls who later on would get together over the dining room table and remember this one and remember that one, oh, poor darling. And I just would drink it all up. I just loved the stories. The fact the Irish are by nature storytellers is very important in uh, the fact that I'm a storyteller. Did your mom emigrate from Ireland or just your dad? My dad immigrated. He was about 20. And all my grandparents, uh, my father's uh, parents never came. They always were in Ireland. I never knew them. And my mother's mother and father were young Irish kids who came over newly married. Your dad's name was Luke. Luke, Luke Joseph, right. I know you were pretty young when your dad died, but did he talk much about his journey over? No, you know, he never did. It's a funny thing. I was only 11, so I knew he had come from Ireland, but I know that he would get letters from his mother, and he would just go and quietly read them. And I remember one time uh, when I was about nine, he opened the letter and read it, and he looked at my mother, and he said, my mother died. And he went in the bedroom and closed the door. And she said, I knew that letter was bad news. I knew it was bad news. I should have waited till after dinner to give it to him. But he never got the chance to go back. His brother and sister who came over both went back a number of times. But my father had an Irish pub, and in those days it would have been sailing, not flying. And there was no way he could have taken the time to sail over and, and stay for a bit and then sail back. You grew up in that Bronx. Was that Irish pub based here in the Bronx? Yes, it was. It was over in a section that went downhill, but it was around the corner from St. Joseph's Church where I was baptized and where we lived for the first two years or three years of my life, I guess. And then they bought a house because my mother was expecting another baby. And then we lived off Pelham Parkway, not far from Fordham. You know, you take the 12 bus and you get off between Williamsbridge and Eastchester, and that's where the Tenbrook Avenue intersected. It's a pretty neighborhood still. Was there a large immigrant population there, Irish immigrants? It was a very interesting mixture. There were Irish, there were Italian, there was Jewish. I mean, you could go up and down the block, and you had you had a real mixture. There was one family that was two families that were German descent. 
I, I would say it was about as interesting a mixture as you could get all those years ago in the Bronx. Your dad came here to America on a ship called the Cedric, and actually the Ellis Island Foundation sent me an image of it. Have you ever seen it? Yes, I've seen the image of it because I received one of the medals they give every year, you know, uh, to a number, a larger number of people. And at that time, I had a picture of the ship, a picture of his signature on it. And my husband, John Conheny, his mother and father were both immigrants from Ireland, and he has his family's background. Did you ever make up stories in your head, Mary, of what that journey must have been like for your dad? It was more that I made up, I imagined what it was like when he was a boy in Ireland, because I've been to what was the family farm, and years ago, I took a horseshoe, an old horseshoe off the uh, that was tacked to the side of the barn. I figured it was worth absolutely nothing, but I had it framed because it was from their barn. I left a couple of dollars for it. And I also have the picture of where he engraved his name in the barn door. And I have a picture of my hand pointing to his name. Very special picture. Very special. What Irish traditions, Mary, do you still follow in your day-to-day life? I follow the Irish tradition of the fact that we have a large family. They live near us, and they're in and out all the time. And it's always, you know, drop a hat and everybody's over here, including cousins. Between us, John and I have 30 in the immediate family, and I have a nice house here in Bergen County, in Saddle River. And just the other night for John's birthday, we had 42 people over. And a few weeks before, it was somebody else's birthday. I love to have everybody around. Mary Higgins-Clark, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It was lovely to be with you today, George. Mary Higgins-Clark's latest book is called Where Are You Now? It was released just this week. If you'd like more information about the Ellis Island Family Heritage Awards or to learn whether your ancestors may have passed through Ellis Island, check out ellisisland.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend.